0: What's up? Welcome back to Nostalgia. Dave here with another podcast. What's going on in pop culture right now? Really good pod this week. I'm excited about this one. On the movie front, we have Michael Mann's Ferrari and Cord Jefferson's American Fiction. Two films that I was able to see early before the release. Both Best Picture contenders, Oscar contenders. Really happy to get into those. Also, the Sundance thriller Eileen, starring Anne Hathaway and Thompson McKenzie, and Netflix's Leave the World Behind from Sam Esmail, starring Julia Roberts and Mahershala Ali. So four high-profile movies to talk about. Oh yeah, and also two albums. Tate McRae's second album, Think Later, following the big year she's had in 2023. And Nicki Minaj's Pink Friday 2, long time coming, first album in over five years. And of course, make sure you come back next week, because I'll be talking about my best music of 2023 yes my top 10 albums songs and my top 10 k-pop songs for the first time as well so make sure you come back for that best movies best tv shows coming soon as well make sure you subscribe youtube.com slash nostalgia pod linktree.com slash nostalgia pod see the links below see the spotify playlist below leave a comment let me know what's good let's get into it what's up welcome back to nostalgia dave here with a reaction to blackpink renewing their contract with yg entertainment yes The second biggest K-pop group in the world, the biggest girl group of all time, Blackpink, Jennie, Jisoo, Rosé, and Lisa, they're back. They'll be staying as a group. Blackpink will remain. Of course, their contract had been up following the customary seven-year K-pop contract, pretty standard, and this has been a talking point, this has been a discussion point for a very long time. Will Blackpink renew? If they renew, what will that mean What's the deal? And of course, people are very interested in that because Blackpink is arguably at the peak of their powers, having recently concluded the Blackpink World Tour, having not only returned to Coachella for a second time, but having headlined it earlier this year. Historic stuff, of course. A pretty big show at uh, London's Hyde Park as well. They've had a monster year. And YG, more than anything, despite the fact that they're one of the big four K-pop labels, they need Blackpink to remain part of their group. We know this to be true, of course, because we can look at the stock fluctuations in the price. Uh, whenever there are rumors about issues with the Blackpink contract and it took longer than expected for this renewal to come through, the price would fluctuate wildly. And to put a stamp on that, when we got the official statement from YG that Blackpink will return, the YG stock price went up over 20%. Like this is their breadwinner, you know, like Treasure. Obviously, the recently debuted Baby Monster. Those, These are small acts compared to what Blackpink is, obviously. And I'll be very curious. And we just don't really know this detail yet, and I'm sure we won't get like a ton of real detail and clarity on this. But what does this new contract do that's different from the old contract? Obviously, second contracts in K-pop are on the rarer side, groups coming back. Although, it's a bit more common lately. Of course, look at like, the shiny comeback. You know, obviously, men have to deal with the military service in korea women not so much but you know um, yg doesn't have the best history of retaining groups past the first contract look at 21 of course blackpink's predecessor and baby monster having just debuted ostensibly in the wake of blackpink nonetheless what will the time split be a lot of the rumors have been that there'll be time allocated for solo activities for the four Blackpink members, but then there will also be group activities where they will reunite as Blackpink. What does that mean? Because I think a lot of Blinks, a lot of Blackpink fans, we've been critical of the lack of general output from Blackpink, and that's kind of a YG thing in general. Like, compare Blackpink to twice. They're just not on the same volume level of music. And even if you think it's, obviously, quality is better than quantity, which, of course, I agree, Blackpink still could be doing a bit more and I'm curious if that will change, um, you know, or w- 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 what will that shift be? I mean, because, again, like even look at like the solo work that we've gotten from the Blackpink members, talking two Rosé singles, one Jisoo single, two Jenny singles, two Lisa singles, and a handful of features from Jenny and Lisa. That's it over seven years. It's not a lot. And I hope that full-length solo albums are in the future, if that's what the solo activities entail. I think Jisoo will be spending some time continuing her acting career. It seems like that's a big interest to her. Obviously, all four of these ladies are pretty established in the fashion industry, and of course, are global brand ambassadors for some time now. That, of course, will continue. You have to imagine. I'm also really curious if YG will, if the Blackpink members will have the freedom. Maybe YG doesn't have a say anymore. Like. Will Blackpink have the, f- the freedom to collaborate more with Western artists in particular? You know, I mean, what we had, they featured with on the Dua Lipa song Kiss and Makeup and Sour Candy from Lady Gaga, and that's it, you know, um, and the soloists, you know, I think Lisa has the DJ Snake feature and Jenny has the song from the Idol, but she was involved in that show. Like, there's just so much opportunity, I think, for Blackpink to really get more established, in western music while retaining their identity look no further than just how integrated jungkook from bts has really gotten into mainstream western music albeit he's been making a lot of english music by pink though not strangers to making english music so i'll just be curious like what changes in terms of how the, the group operates you know i would say in general most k-pop fans were pretty underwhelmed by the baby monster debut single batter up primarily for its similarities to past yg songs including blackpink songs i don't know how much juice creatively yg has right now so i really hope that the blackpink members will have a lot of say in their musical output and hopefully they're aware of this kind of creative wheel spinning that it feels like we're starting to get from yg entertainment and it's a competitive time hybe has been killing it you know they're leading the way with all the new groups of course new genes Lissera both had amazing years this year. Blackpink's still at the top. I don't think anyone can knock them off their perch as long as they want to be active. But I just hope that they have the freedom to continue to do more if they, so, if they so choose. And hopefully we find out what that means to some degree. But I think more than anything, it's good that Blackpink will return uh, and maybe the group won't be full-time. That's probably the way it's going to go. But More than anything, these four women are better together than they are apart, like most music groups usually are. Um, I think that's certainly the case with Blackpink. We want Blackpink to remain and per the YG statement, they will go on tour again, they will release another album. I'm gonna kind of assume that like they won't go on a tour as big as the Born Pink World tour. I kinda feel like that's the biggest tour they're ever do. And, you know, this is a contract that lets time for solo activities, and I still think they're gonna do that many dates anymore so this is probably the peak of like their touring output But we'll see there's a lot of things we don't know a lot of things we probably won't find out but hey if we get a blackpink album in 2024 that'd be pretty awesome i don't know how much music they were really making uh this year given how much touring they were doing we'll see but uh, yeah let me know how are you feeling about the blackpink contract renewal are you surprised that they are seemingly still under yg and maybe not off on the offshoot label the black label you know the Black Label, founded by uh, their consistent co- producing collaborator Teddy Park. Some people thought maybe that would happen. Let's see. We'll see. Are you surprised by that? Let me know how you're feeling in general. And of course, for more K-pop reviews, see the link below for all the K-pop reviews I've done. And make sure you come back for my best K-pop songs of 2023 coming very soon. What's up? Welcome back to Nostalgia. Dave here with a review of Tate McRae's second album, Think Later canadian pop singer still only 20 years old back with her second album of course her debut album i used to think i could fly was only last year and in general it's been a very busy time for tate mccray ever since she blew up on tiktok slash due to the help of her successful dancing ability a few years back and right now she's hot on the heels of A gigantic smash hit with her single greedy which has been a very sticky smash on the charts even lingering as the christmas songs begin to take over the charts in december here and to her credit i think greedy is definitely a great example of you know pop song construction just a very sticky melody and also a very uh, enjoyable interpolation of Nelly Furtado's Promiscuous on top of that. Overall, though, I haven't been the biggest Tate McRae fan. Part of that, I think, is just kind of an unhoned sound, an unhoned sonic identity, where I'm not really sure like, what kind of artist she wants to be. And clearly, she might have been also feeling this herself, because her past music, uh, the biggest hit of hers to date you broke me first definitely more in that like sad girl slightly more emo pop side of things from a lyrical sentiment and Tate McRae seemingly has left that at least a little bit behind with this new album think later and i think that's cool you know again figure out what kind of artist you want to be my biggest issue still is is that Tate McRae's like vocals don't really like pop for me I don't think she's the most impressive singer, and as a result, the songs are kind of drowned out with like this kind of heavy electronic production this time around on the song, so the songs have to be, like I think, kind of incredibly overproduced to make up for the fact that she can't really carry songs on the strength of her vocals, and if it's not going to be your vocals carrying you, it's going to have to be the production and the lyrics. And I think there are some interesting lyrical moments on the album, but to me, just I'm just not really a fan of this sound yet. And I I would be remiss not to assume that she's going to continue to hone and fine tune what kind of music she's going to make. I, she's still very far from a, a finished product, despite the fact that she's been working with a lot of you know big. Pop producers, uh, RCA Records famously kind of reworked the way they approach marketing off the strength of her very early success years ago. There's a Rolling Stone article about that. Nowadays, she's working with Ryan Tedder, Greg Kirsten. uh, There's a lot of big names on the record. But yeah, I I think like just kind of going through the tracks. I mentioned Greedy, which deserves a ton of credit for just being a really sticky pop song. I think that one's good. Um, I think Hurt My Feelings is probably my next favorite song off think later it's a really fun rhythm to that and also kind of a sticky outro like yeah there's a lot of production on that of course but sometimes it, it's to good effect it's catchy so I, I respect that for sure um grave that one stands out from the more ballady side of things you know Tate McRae, uh her friend one of her friends is olivia Rodrigo she's certainly a peer of Olivia's and when she was making the more emo side of things you could definitely see more of an inspiration clearly they're not as as closely aligned musically as they maybe once were, nonetheless, grave, you can see the comparison. But it's a pretty, I think, pretty uh, powerful as it goes. is also pretty catchy, um, fun lyrics there. But yeah, I think overall, like... Tate McRae, I'm still going to be checking for her, like the music videos, the dance performance that she does with her songs. It's quite impressive. She's a talented dancer. And I think there is a certainly a lane for her to become a uh, interesting pop star. But I think we're still kind of working on the sound, which again, is not that big a concern right now, because she's still only 20 years old. And when you can have a monster hit come around every cycle or so the way she just had again with greedy i mean i think she's doing just fine thus far but hopefully better things to come but let me know how did you feel about tate mccrase think later are you hoping for more in the future like me let me know and for more music reviews subscribe and i'll see you next time what's up welcome back to nostalgia dave here with a review of Nicki minaj's fifth album pink friday 2 yes nikki back first album since queen five years ago in 2018 and if you think about the time between Nicki Minaj albums the rap landscape specifically the female MC rap landscape has really changed and I didn't really put this together until I started thinking about it but back in 2018 obviously we had the Cardi B debut album but apart from that like Megan Thee Stallion was just starting to pick up steam with the Tina Snow mixtape all these other female rappers we almost take for granted these days They were nowhere to be found yet. And now we're at a time where it's never been a better time to be a female rapper. It is no longer a special occurrence when a female rapper stands out and impresses you and does good work. It is now just part of rap. And obviously, that is great. And Nikki, of course, deserves so much credit for paving the way for this because, of course, for the long time, for really the first half, first two-thirds of Nicki Minaj's career, she was kind of the only game in town in terms of a new female rapper at the top, you know, pushing things forward. And, you know, Nicki, she's aligned herself with some of the new MCs, like Ice Spice and Coil Ray and Sexy Red. She's uh, not necessarily been a fan of other ones. There's been some beef, some Cold War beef, etc. We don't have to get into that right now. Nonetheless, Nicki has... Uh, stayed around in between albums. I think a big part due to, due to being a big collaborator. And lately, she's been one of the most successful people at kind of jumping on and following the trend of really big, flashy samples in your new songs. Of course, her collab with Ice Spice, Barbie World, fl- flipping Aqua's uh, Barbie Girl for the Barbie film soundtrack earlier this year, big hit. Red Ruby, the Sleaze, another uh, good example of this. One of Nikki's singles from uh, earlier this year, the Never Leave You sample, is very uh, obvious there. Of course, another single, Super Freaky Girl, with the very obvious Rick James sample. nikki has been doing this lately. And honestly, she's been one of the best at doing it. And Pink Friday, too, uh, gives you more of that beyond these early singles. And I have to say, I didn't have a lot of, like, necessarily hype for the distinction of it being Pink Friday 2, I was just excited for for a new Mickey Minaj album after five years. We needed one. Uh, But Pink Friday 2 is hardly the first, uh, quote, sequel to a landmark blockbuster rap album. This is very common in rap over the years with big artists. And even if it's really a sequel in name only, uh, it's still kind of exciting. And I have to say, this is an album that it's too long for sure. We definitely could have cut some of these songs, but I think overall it definitely... uh, met the hype for me i think pink friday 2 was great i think there's a lot of bangers on this and more than anything reminds you of just how talented Nicki minaj is as a rapper she's incredibly versatile but when she really gets into the rapping bag as she does a few times on pink friday 2 that's what i get really excited because i love rapping ass rapper Nicki minaj because she's up there with the best of them but yeah, there's a lot to get into with this album. Yeah, so just as, as I'm going through it here, there's a lot of samples to highlight. And I think that there's a, a big criticism to have about Pink Friday, too, beyond just being a little too long. It's that Nicki's talented enough to not need to rely on such high-profile samples. And she doesn't need to be the one keeping this going. So overall, some of these samples are, are more effective than others. Nonetheless, just kind of going through the track list here. Track two immediately got my attention, Barbie Dangerous, because this is a Notorious Thugs-Biggie Smalls flip by Nicki Minaj. Nicki, you know, reworking the beat, using the flow, of course a classic Biggie song, and it's fire. This is rap and rapper Nicki, this is what I want from her, this is awesome. It's not the first time, of course, that Nicki has taken from Biggie Smalls. Of course, Barbie Dreams uh, was a big Biggie sample off Queen. Uh, she used a biggie flow for four door ventador back in the day as well she's been doing this but she's good enough to pull this off obviously uh interpolating sampling biggie dude at your own peril you have to bring it to pull it off but i think Nicki minaj pulls it off i was pretty impressed uh one of my favorite songs on the album for sure uh ftcu fuck the club up Uh, again kind of obvious sample there uh, beep Beep, I think this one also goes hard. Kind of like a pop trill uh, beat specifically. Shadow out Ice Spice, but I, I think this one's pretty hard. Uh, Let Me Calm Down featuring Cole. I think that one's all right. But R&B featuring Lil Wayne and Tate Kobang. Man, I thought that was uh, really fire. Thought both features were really good. I like that song a lot. Uh, Needle, interesting. A Drake collab from Nikki. This has been hyped. It had been a while. It had been since before Queen that we got a new collab between the two of them. And, you know, it's interesting because it's kind of like a tropical house song a la like Drake's Passion Fruit, I guess you could say. Um, Not my favorite of their collabs. Obviously, they have some classics from back in the day, like Bedrock and Moment for Life and Make Me Proud, etc. Like, it's hard to get back to those highs of 10 plus years ago. Nonetheless, it's pretty. It's, it's, It's nice. One of the best songs on the album, though. Has to be Everybody, featuring little Uzi Vert. The Move Your Feet sample, again, very obvious, but also just really catchy. It's re- it really grabs you. I liked it. I liked Cowgirl uh, as well. Uh, big Difference, I think, is Hard. That's a really fun switch-up halfway through where the beat completely uh, flips and, and Nikki does a new flow. Uh, Red Ruby to Sleeze, I mentioned, with the Never Leave You sample. Uh, notable, because that one has a pretty obvious Megan the Stallion diss on that song this song was months old at this point but I don't fuck with horses since Christopher Reeves make of that what you will uh Pink Friday Girls another obvious sample here Sydney Lauper's Girls Just Want to Have Fun and the beats kind of like tweaked with some like Bay Area like 808s bouncing around there I thought that was pretty fun of course Super Freaky Girl with the Rick James sample people know this one uh My Life with the Heart of Glass sample <laughs> um nikki hendrix feature that they were a really good match together and that one's a that one's a big highlight for sure um so yeah i mean that's like you know it's a 22 song 70 minute album but there's a good like dozen tracks or so that i think are real highlights and it's just nice to get a lot of new music from nikki just because it's been so long and uh nikki there's so much noise around her obviously she's not afraid to speak her own mind and obviously the barbs are not want, afraid to speak on things either but it's good to like get, get new work because nikki is good enough to warrant all this attention and it's fun when we kind of get past the bs and actually get back to the music because when we get back to the music with her uh it pays off pays dividends i think it's a better album than queen for sure and it honestly it, not that it's much of a sequel, but it's worthy of the Pink Friday name because I think it's a pretty good record. So yeah, shout out Nicki Minaj. Shout out Pink Friday too. Hopefully we don't have to wait another five years between albums. Um, interestingly, you know, Nicki, she sounds, you know, a, a, as good as ever for the most part. And, you know, now she's uh, 40, just turned 41 years old. She's, she's kind of an OG at this point, you know, but she sounds great. And I, I think she will help continue the trend of rappers going beyond their 40s and continuing to have fruitful careers. I see no reason not to believe that. But let me know, how did you feel about Nicki Minaj's Pink Friday 2? Let me know. And for more rap reviews, more music reviews, subscribe. And I'll see you next time. What's up? Welcome back to Nostalgia. Dave here with a review of Eileen, the new psychological thriller film from William Oldroyd, starring Anne Hathaway and Thomason McKenzie. Eileen debuted back at Sundance earlier this year and is now out in release. William Oldroyd, of course, not the most esteemed director per se, but famously his last film, Lady Macbeth, was the source of the breakout role for Miss Florence Pugh. And Eileen is adapted from the 2015 novel of the same name by Otessa Mashfi. And Eileen I think this is a movie that I honestly I didn't love I don't even know if I liked it that much but I appreciate it for what it is it is a kind of classic kind of old school thriller a bit small in scope but also svelte in a nice way it's a pretty brief movie only about like 97 minutes and has some fun performances in it has a fun twist at the end and is a a decent watch even if ultimately for me some of the twists, some of the tonal shifts didn't quite land for me. Uh, yeah, so Eileen, it's, you know, set in like 1960s, like Massachusetts area, and Thomason McKenzie as a young woman is uh, playing the titular Eileen, and Eileen is working at a like juvenile uh, detention uh, facility. She's pretty aimless and bored in her life. She doesn't seem to get a lot of attention from her coworkers or people in town. She's Really, just kind of viewed as like an extension of her alcoholic former cop father, played by Shea Whigham, and yeah, she just kind of seems a bit kind of at loss with like what to do with herself, and things change in her life when a new uh, a physician shows up at the juvenile uh, detention facility that she works at, uh, Rebecca, played by Anne Hathaway. And this is one of those like kind of like great textbook Anne Hathaway performances. She has the big blonde blowout, but she's having a real fun time in this role. Flashy, charismatic, um, and, and Rebecca seems to take kind of a liking to Eileen as, you know, a new person in town. She, she develops some, some sort of a friendship with Eileen. And Thomas McKenzie, Mackenzie, you know, this is pretty familiar stuff for her at this point. Kind of playing the like wounded bird, uh, wallflower-type young woman that she's done a few times to great effect already. Of course, people probably best know this from Last Night in Soho or Leave No Trace. And I think Thomas and Mackenzie, she's a good actor. I would like her to maybe get out of this box and find a different type of thing to do, at least a little bit. Just And, and Eileen gives her a little bit to do at times, but the overall characterization... I was immediately kind of annoyed with how familiar it felt from having knowledge of her past work. That's not necessarily the fault of Eileen, but it, it felt a little safe for a choice from a uh, rising young actress such as herself. Nonetheless, you know, I think the it's funny because this is a psychological thriller film that kind of like leans into like some psychosexual stuff. But to me, that was some of the most inconsistent stuff with the movie, especially because a lot of it's kind of drop. I don't know. I think ultimately, like, I lean just a bit thin with, like, where it's trying to, like, where it's trying to lead you as the viewer with the, um, just kind of the tonal sensibilities of the movie. Like, and on the surface, there's a lot of things to enjoy about it. Like, I think Shea Wiggum, the gruffness he brings as this really kind of degenerate alcoholic and shitty dad, um, He does a great job in the movie. And also, uh, Mayor in Ireland does a, uh, I think, really fantastic job as Mrs. Polk, who is the mother of a uh, young man recently brought to the facility. And there's a scene in Act 3 between Mackenzie Hathaway and Ireland that is really strong. Um, Definitely a big kind of like eyebrow raiser, like gasp inducing twist with this movie, I'm not going to spoil it, but, like, that was something that I didn't quite see coming, but also presents a huge shift for the movie and what you thought you were watching, and I don't know if it, it, to me, was kind of resolved a bit too cleanly or a bit too quickly, I guess you could say. Uh, So, I don't know. Like, Eileen, it's just, it's just, like, I I appreciate the attempt, but I found the movie to be a bit of a challenge until the twist happened, and then I just didn't think we had enough time with the twist as much as i enjoy a period film that doesn't have cell phones and you just kind of have a movie star performance from someone like hathaway at the center of the movie like i just don't think it completely comes together to really kind of rise above uh the skeleton of what the movie is which is kind of a mismatch of tone and you know uh structural like challenges with the twists so yeah eileen i think it's an okay watch but to me i, I wasn't grabbed enough to really endorse it and I was kind of a bit let down because this is one of the most like hyped movies out of sundance uh, to be honest nonetheless better days are ahead i think for all involved but yeah let me know how'd you feel about eileen uh did you like it more than me and for more movie reviews subscribe and i'll see you next time what's up welcome back to nostalgia dave here with a review of leave the world behind the new psychological apocalyptic thriller film from netflix directed by sam esmail starring julia roberts hirsh ali ethan Hawke, and mahala harold this is adapted from the rumen alum novel of the same name from just a few years ago netflix won the bidding war put this out as one of their fall uh, slate of movies perhaps not as hyped up as say maestro but still a significant release from netflix nonetheless and I was certainly anticipating Leave the World Behind because I'm a big fan of Sam Esmail, Mr. Robot, his signature series on USA that ended back in 2019, that made my top 10 shows of the 2010s. I was absolutely uh, floored by that show, one of my favorites of all time for sure. also really liked his Amazon two-season series, Homecoming, which of course featured Julia Roberts in its first season, and when you look at this cast... Julie Roberts, Hawk, Mahala Harold, of course, one of our favorites right now, thanks to her star turn on Industry on HBO, and of course, The Return of Herschel Ali, one of our great movie stars. Uh, it's kind of selling itself, I would have to say. And in a small role, we have Kevin Bacon as well. Always nice to see him. And yeah, this is a, a film that I think has a lot of those Sam Esmail trademarks. The cinematography, the blocking, the camera panning, the uh shifting perspective from the first floor to the basement inside of the wall to the outside very reminiscent to all those, those of us who know sam's uh camera work in the past his his, his visual flair definitely familiar but in a good way and that was all great you know i think this is a film that will definitely be challenging to though to some i think cuz the ending's probably a bit polarizing due to the kind of lack of overt resolution this is a film that has a gigantic conflict at its very core but is not a film that's really trying to tell you much about that conflict i guess you could say it's more interested in how these characters are reacting to what they do and don't know so it is absolutely a must-watch movie but i think the takeaways will really depend on the viewer so the, the premise is ultimately really solid you have julie roberts and ethan hawke's characters they're married they take their two uh children with them on a kind of spur of the moment vacation leaving their home in new york city leaving brooklyn and taking a, a seemingly weekend vacation over on long island renting a house and in the middle of the night uh the owner of this house who they rented from you know from on airbnb or whoever, ali it's his home He shows up with his, you know, adult daughter, played by Mahala, and they need a place to stay. And that's kind of where, like, the movie, like, kind of sets off, because there's a caginess to Julia Roberts' character, Amanda, where she just doesn't trust uh, G.H. Marshall's character. She's suspicious, and she's prickly. And I think credit to Julia because she plays a character that is really unlikable for the majority of the movie. Um, But anyway, they end up staying together. And what becomes increasingly clear is that some kind of apocalyptic event is happening. And uh, the TV goes out, the internet goes down, GPS stops working on the phone, uh, GH finds a sat phone at a neighbor's home, even that isn't working. And it starts to become pretty clear that the United States is under some kind of coordinated attack although it's unclear by who or for what reason uh you have Ethan Hawke's character Clay trying to drive into town getting a Death to America pamphlet dropped on him by a drone when he's in his car like it's definitely unsettling and the movie leads to um some big shots some big moments where you see, well, where gh he survives a plane crashing on the beach very close to where he was um after stumbling on the wreckage of a previously already crashed uh plane right that's like a big set piece thing you have a a scene where mahala and julia look out and they get this gaze upon you know manhattan and they see uh mushroom clouds and bombs and at one point there's this Big, almost like EMP like um, noise distortion that hurts everyone's ears. And all that's very unsettling and disturbing as the characters start to adapt to their new reality. But really, the movie isn't interested in telling you anything about that conflict at all, anything about what's happening to the greater world. It's really only interested in these characters and how they're reacting with each other, coming to grips coming with acceptance of their new situation gh and mahala's character ruth realizing that they're never going to see uh their mother/wife ever again she's almost assuredly gone um yeah it, it's it's pretty disturbing and it, and it's funny because the way i think the way the movie you know concludes you know we have this scene where um uh Julia and Ethan Hawke's uh, teenage son—he gets sick, seemingly bitten by a bug in the woods. We're kind of unclear what happened. Did he get radiation? Did the loud noise affect him? It's obviously left ambiguous intentionally. They end up tracking down uh, Kevin Bacon's character, who G.H. knows from the neighborhood, and trying to have get him get help because they can tell he's kind of a prepper type character. And he gives you like the faintest of morsels of like what's going on with the greater plot of the outside world. But even then, the whole, like, uh, having to protect your own versus helping others thing, I guess it's a bit, like, on the nose. It doesn't get too deep. Um, but where a classic, like, Samism happens, classic A Smile Touch is the immediately following moments where, where the movie ends, where it's a culmination of everything that's happened to, happened with uh, Julia and Hawk's, Uh, daughter character to this point she's uh, younger than their son and she's been obsessed with trying to finish watching uh friends she's on the last episode but her her tablet is no longer working there's no connection even the tv can't play the reruns and obviously she's a very like screen addled gen z gen alpha kid and yet she feels helpless and unable to continue to discern the happiness that she got from that show as a result of being able to finish watching friends and it's actually like i think pretty amusing and underrated aspect of this film because it's that that sense of innocence but also like direct value proposition on like your broader entertainment having like the littlest character youngest character be the only one to like seemingly have some kind of center as you watch everyone else kind of start the spiral and come to grips with what's going on it's pretty amusing And the way the movie ends is Rose, the daughter, she stumbles across the a neighbor's home, who G H had uh, found. G H was aware of, and then Kevin Bacon's character led on that they 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 might have a like a doomsday shelter in the basement because he had heard about some off permit work going on, et cetera, et cetera. Well, Rose kind of stumbles on that house looking for food, and she stumbles across the safe room, and discovers this fully functioning, ready to go safe room that the family clearly should move to. ASAP, both families. And in it, what does she find but a wall of DVDs and VHS? And what does she find but the Friends final season collect DVD? Puts it on, and she puts on the final episode, and her face breaks into a smile. We hear the Friends theme song begin, and the movie ends. And I think it's a very bold choice, I have to say. You know, I think some of the stuff along the way is probably where the movie maybe you might lose some people. And that, I think, abruptness of with a lack of clarity in the ending definitely might lose some people as well. But I really like that as an ending. You know, I think some of the other stuff is a bit um, surface level where um, Mahala's character, Ruth, she's really not hitting it off with Julie Roberts as Amanda at all. Amanda and Ruth are constantly butting heads. It's kind of referenced that maybe Amanda was distrustful of them from the start because they're both black. But it's never really like said anything more beyond that, it's not really explored too much Um, she's kind of just kind of broadly like a Karen character, that definitely could have used more touch if you were going to take it in that route also, there's some amusing moments with like wild animals outside, like uh, Rose keeps seeing like a gigantic herd of deer Uh, there's a really cool like split second scene at night where you see all the deer in the backyard, you see the glowing lights out in the darkness, that was sick, but There's a moment towards the end out in the woods where Amanda and and Ruth together have to kind of like scare off the CGI deer herd. And I'm not really sure exactly what the purpose of that scene necessarily is, to be honest, Um, but it was interesting. So, yeah, you know, I think overall, like Leave the World Behind, it's unlike just about anything else I've seen this year. And I mean, when you have Julie Roberts and Hawk and Harold and, Herschel Ali, who just oozes charisma, oozes presence, as we all know at this point. Like, they're all giving great performances. And even if I think the script might be a little up and down overall, and again, that resolution might not be for everyone, I think overall it's a worthy endeavor. And I really hope Sam continues to uh, keep working. You know, I know his Megalopolis adaptation uh, at Apple got canned right before the strike began due to a lot of uncertainties with the strike. So we don't really know what he's working on next. But of course, I think Sam Esmail is a pretty in-demand talent. And of course, we know all these actors are super in-demand as well. We'll be hearing from them as, as well. So yeah, let me know. How did you feel about Netflix's Leave the World Behind? Did the polarizing aspects uh, make or break it for you? Let me know what you thought. And for more movie reviews and my best movies of 2023, subscribe. And I'll see you next time. What's up? Welcome back to Nostalgia. Dave here with a review of American Fiction the new comedy-drama film starring Jeffrey Wright, written and directed by Cord Jefferson in his feature film debut. Cord Jefferson, perhaps not a household name, but should be of particular interest to people in the know due to his really esteemed television career over the last half decade or so. Honestly, one of the standout TV writers of Recent times, of course, working on shows like The Good Place and Station Eleven and Succession and Master of None, and then famously winning the Emmy for writing for the Hooded Justice Origin episode, arguably the greatest episode of that fantastic miniseries from 2019. So, the Core Jefferson debut feature film uh, sold itself to me. I was going to see it no matter what it was. And then, when you take that and combine it with a cast featuring Jeffrey Wright and Sterling K. Brown and Tracy Ellis Ross. Uh, it's pretty impressive. I really enjoyed American fiction. I thought the satirical basis of the film, which is namely about uh, how black people exist in culture and how perhaps at times they might pander to uh, what white people expect of them within society and a bunch of other things as well. I thought the satirical humorous bend to that premise was done really well. The humor was great, despite uh, you a know, heavier, serious subject matter at its core. And also, the movie features, I think, genuine heart and family dynamics, and again, despite having a pretty consistently hum- humorous tone. And I had a great time with this. I saw this in an early screening. It's not actually opening for another two weeks, but the screening I went to was packed, and the humor was raucous; like the the crowd was loving it. And I have to say, I was really into the movie. And I just think it's really impressive. And even if like I, I've seen some criticism of the film that were like the the masters of the of this script, the, the satire versus the character dynamics. Maybe that is a bit in contrast uh, with each with with itself in conflict with itself. You have, you have a lot of. Uh, goals with parts of the script and maybe that's a bit messy or a bit uh ill-defined to me all all those like disparate parts of this script like really work so i would enthusiastically endorse american fiction of course this is a film that premiered back in toronto and has been slowly preparing to release here on this this deluge of best picture contenders and it's funnily uh the second film shot in and around boston that's contending for best picture this year Uh, just like the holdovers from Alexander Payne, funny enough. It's it's, it's really surreal for the second time in like a month that I'm watching a movie at AMC Boston Common, and I see on screen stuff shot like 100 yards from where I'm currently sitting. Like, it's just a very weird feeling, I have to say. Uh, But cool. And yeah, so let's get into American fiction. So I'm going to kind of spoil some stuff broadly, although it's not a movie that's like ripe with like tons of plot to spoil. So kind of getting into the meat of American fiction... Jeffrey Wright plays this uh, author slash professor character who's living out in California called Thelonious Ellison, nicknamed Monk. Just a fantastic character name, I have to say. And Monk uh, is kind of forced into a leave of absence at uh, his college due to his kind of uh, frustrations with uh, progressiveness and the attitudes of his young students, his Gen Z students. And I think uh, the the big part of that is Jeffrey Wright's, uh, or Monk's uh, belief that uh, the way uh, black people are portrayed in culture is often due to, uh, under the gaze of how white people like to see them. And a lot of black people, black artists play into that with kind of a pandering nature monk is a author and he sees that his books that are very uh, academic are not recognized as quote uh or, or are recognized as black literature just because he's a black man even though they're not actually about anything about being black and then he can contrast that with, uh, this rival author character played by Issa ray who writes a pretty obviously like pandering account of like what white people like want to see, you know, the, the misery porn, the drugs, the broken families, uh, or uh, the, the struggle, the come up, you know. And he's just kind of frustrated uh, with that, which he sees as limiting and uh, uh, you know constricting to like what the actual black experience is and what it actually means to be black uh, and things like that. And in general, like that tone throughout the movie, I think it's handled really well because it's, like it's pretty sharp, it's pretty biting. There's some really like great commentary and just great pieces of writing, great pieces of uh, great delivery, great lines. But also like the humor, as I've been saying, is very consistent. So there, like a lot of this stuff is pointed out to you in a very humorous tone, and like the lines just really hit. Um, and Monk, you know, he's brought back to. Uh, back to back home back to the boston area due to his uh, uh mother uh is going through a uh some health issues it's revealed that she has alzheimer's um and he has to kind of reconnect with his family reconnect with his sister played by tracy ellis ross reconnect with his brother played by sterling k brown and monk has been kind of distant from the family and that's kind of a the consistent for some time it's not a new development he's kind of a gruff guy and he uh doesn't exactly check in on on things. And I think that, like I said, the family dynamics with the movie, I think are really good. It should come as no surprise that Sterling K. Brown delivers some really emotional moments. You know, I think we know this from Sterling K. Brown at this point, he's one of our great actors and I think he does a great job. He has some great humor. Um, There's a really funny moment he has on the beach in the South shore area in New England. Um, But also, there's some really heavy stuff that's about him personally and about his life um, and how it reacts to the rest of his family. And speaking to like the warmth, you know, um, his mother hired like a housekeeper for a long time, uh, Lorraine played by Myra Lucretia Taylor, just the whole warmth with that character and how she um, finds some love later in life with this local uh, acquaintance named Maynard all of that I thought was just really heartwarming, I have to say. Also, I really enjoyed Monk's like budding relationship uh, with Coraline, who's like a neighbor at the family beach home. Coraline played by Erica Alexander. I thought she did a great job. And yeah, like the the movie, like I think kind of the brilliance of the movie, right, is uh, when uh, Monk, for, like going on a lark, decides to write one of these like overtly pandering to liberal white people type books about stereotypical black experience and he's doing it as a joke to kind of give an f you to all the publishers who don't want to buy his smart books and he doesn't expect it to go anywhere and then it becomes a bestseller and things kind of spiral from there he gets a movie deal um he, he, he does it under a pseudonym as well so there's a lot of fame and notoriety with this kind of anonymous character and adam brody plays a really funny uh movie director character and yeah like that kind of stuff, I think, really spirals to a fun way. I think the ending is uh, pretty fun as well. So, yeah, I mean, American fiction, it's not out yet, so I don't really want to go, like, too deep on that. But Issa Rae, I think, has a really meaningful moment. Uh, the uh, Monk and Issa Rae's character come together because they both are uh, brought on to do this literary award in uh, New England, uh, this, like, kind of book ranking, book award giving. Um, and they're, like, like overtly hired to make the body more diverse and that's like set up front and monk just like rolls his eyes at it man and and they they have a really good conversation uh where monk basically challenges what who she is for writing her pandering book and finding all that success and who is to blame for those things i think it's a really good conversation that comes out of that too and yeah like i really like the movie um i was kind of expecting to be impressed in some way just because i've been a fan of core jefferson for some time it sounds like jeffrey wright is firmly in the best actor mix i would imagine this screenplay is in the best adapted screenplay mix as well best picture nomination seems uh pretty safe as well so yeah i, I think it's definitely a unique movie where it has some kind of old school elements to it but with a really like modern and sharp script so uh it'll definitely be in my top 10 movies of 2023 make sure you come back for that very soon and of course let me know what you thought of american fiction what worked for you what didn't work for you how'd you like it and for more movie reviews subscribe and i'll see you next time what's up welcome back to nostalgia dave here with a review of ferrari the new biopic film from michael mann starring adam driver and penelope cruz yes michael mann is back his first movie in eight years, first movie since Black Cat in 2015, it's been a minute. And honestly, Michael Mann is continuing the year of the octogenarian in film. Martin Scorsese, Michael Mann, Ridley Scott, all of our esteemed 80-plus-year-old filmmakers are dropping bangers on our heads to end the year. Because I thought Ferrari ripped. I like this movie a ton. I have a pretty good chance it's going to make my top ten at the end of the year. Come back for that. And yeah, this movie's coming out uh, on Christmas after premiering in Venice earlier in this year. I was lucky enough to catch a early screening. I'll start with no spoilers and spoil it towards the end. So right off the bat, I really enjoyed the movie. You know, I think what's really cool about Ferrari, besides just Michael Mann making us another movie, which in and of itself uh, sells itself, is that it's a smartly done biopic, which I wasn't really too concerned about. I wasn't really worried about this movie, but... This is a movie set in 1957 over the course of like three months. This is not the entire life story of this great person. Nope, this is a focus-specific tale, and Ferrari the movie is such a better entity as a result of that decision. Also, the casting is great. Adam Driver in the title role as Enzo Ferrari. He's actually 20 years younger than the Enzo he's portraying in this movie. In the film, Enzo is 59, but Adam Driver is, I think, actually able to age up quite well. And, you know, Adam Driver, he's a big guy. He has a presence and he's really able to imbue, I think, that presence, but also that kind of like steely passion that was so famous about Enzo Ferrari and the reason uh, his his workers called him uh, commendatori, you know, like it is the, the presence and, and the mystique of Enzo Ferrari, the man driver's really able to imbue that like the way he kind of like walks and lords over the people around him like it's another it's a really great use of adam driver's strengths and his talents this is of course another movie with adam driver doing an italian accent after house of gucci just two years ago and honestly it's not like the best italian accent but he's going for it and it's fun that's a movie in english almost entirely anyway it's not a big deal um but yeah i, I think he's very convincing. Also. Penelope Cruz as Enzo Ferrari's wife slash business partner, Laura Ferrari. Jeez, incredible performance from, from Cruz. Uh, you know, the kind of core crux of this movie, the core crux of that relationship. And the reason they're estranged and kind of at odds is that they, they've kind of fallen out of love largely due to the loss of their son, Dino, due to muscular dystrophy and Laura is handling that grief in a very different way from Enzo, who's a much more reserved and, uh, you know, emotionally uh, contained person. Whereas Laura is not afraid to really um, tell you how she feels, but also it's a really great, I think, like piece of writing, like how her characters weaved in to the story, partially due to her, Uh, attachment to the Ferrari empire on the business side of things it's much more than just the wife role and it should be no surprise that a Michael Mann movie has a leading man and the 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 greatness but the the troubling nature of the brilliance and genius of the man is kind of at the forefront of the movie that's that's not surprising to most Michael Mann stories right no no surprise here at Ferrari but I think the the female characters really fit in well here and of course that's Laura Ferrari is a estranged wife, as well as uh, Lena Lardy, played by Shailene Woodley, which, of course, is Enzo Ferrari's mistress, who he's spending a lot of time with, who also happens to be the mother of his illegitimate uh, son, Piero. And, you know, the kind of the build up with the movie as uh, Laura learns about this family, she knew he was seeing other women, but she did not know that Enzo had another family hidden off in the countryside, uh, while uh, (laughs) they're ostensibly living together in in Modena, you know, where uh, the Ferrari HQ is. Um, I really like how that works, you know. And meanwhile, of course, it's still a really good movie about, like, a racing team, the Ferrari racing team, and about business. You know, it's coming at a very pivotal point in the story here. 1957, you know, Ferrari is kind of subsumed by all this debt, and is under a lot of pressure, and kind of guidance to sell the company to perhaps ford or even fiat of course the you know big italian car company and there's a lot of riding on this upcoming race the uh milli miglia which is kind of this, like cross-country like uh kind of like uh, like rome's rally race across uh italy and the marketing benefits of winning the race and beating the rival uh cars of maserati for example would really benefit Ferrari financially as a business, so it's kind of like the confluence of Enzo Ferrari's true passion, which is cars and racing, as a former racer, and the success of his business that he needs to be able to continue to fund his racing team. So, uh, I think all of that like really really works pretty well, honestly. And there, there's a few really memorable like visceral, visceral shots of filmmaking. There's one at the end. That's incredibly shocking. I'm going to start to spoil the movie where you forget or you you get reminded of who made the movie, right? I think early on, uh, you see this pretty, pretty cool with uh, uh, Ferrari's, one of his test drivers uh, dies during a speed test and you actually see the body, it's, it's clearly a dummy, but like the body jettisoned way up in the air, you know, watching the guy about to be killed and it's an introduction to Enzo the Man, who's he's pretty calculating and unapologetic and quick to move on, not not someone who kinda of dwells on the emotional things. And he's like very quickly hires this new driver, Alfonso uh, De Portago, this young kind of upstart guy. And then on the other side, when we're you know in the Millie race and we're at the very end, and De Portago, who's kind of been like this young uh upstart driver who's engendering himself to the Ferrari team, even though he's not the most experienced driver yet. He's doing pretty well in the race towards the end, and then he just kind of has bad luck, hits something in the road, gets a puncture in the tire, flips, careens off to the side, and takes out a ton of civilians, and killing himself, of course, as well. And that moment is like a like a gasp, jaw-dropper-type moment. And then the lead-up to that, of course, the racing stuff's like really... Pulsing and fun. It's filmed well. It feels fast. It feels exhilarating. It's really cool uh, to be in these single-seater cars in the fifties. You know, it's a lot different than, of course, Formula One today. In, in another uh, race, similar racing, watching the danger of racing back in the day so obvious as you're watching the movie and watching civilians, spectators being so close to the action, and then you see something go so horribly wrong. And you watch the car flip and just take people out, and you see people get bisected, and you, including children. Like it is a pure moment of like ultra violence and and, and, and despair, and it was a real real jaw dropper. But it's incredibly earned, and it's I think it's played off like incredibly well. It did not feel tasteless in any way. Um, just through the the progress of the movie, like there's just a lot of awesome scenes, man. Like I mentioned the the early test scene. I thought that was great. Um, seeing Enzo uh, use the press and control the press, and how he talks to the media and interacts with them—really good job of examining who the guy was and how much stature he carried, and and how he wielded that. And he was a calculating man, both publicly and behind the scenes. I liked that. Um, I like I like. It's kind of just a throwaway scene. There's a barbershop scene though, where uh, all the locals are shitting on the Modena. Uh, football team for not being any good not being the pride of the city that was hilarious Um, early on there's a really great church scene where you have the uh, the priest giving a sermon talking about like how god uh is like the engine or something along those lines meanwhile ferrari and all his uh employees are there in attendance and they all take out their stopwatch when they hear the test starting gun go off in the distance and they're just staring at their stopwatch, re- recording the test in church as you hear the sermon going off. And like, is that on the nose? Of course it is. But to me, it was a great scene, you know, and also kind of call it back just a little bit to, um, Godfather, you know, when you have, uh, the communion scene or confirmation scene, whatever it is, when, uh, all the guys are getting, uh, whacked. thought that was pretty fun. Um, i I had one criticism i guess i think like the the head of maserati you know like the head businessman of maserati and also the head of the team i believe he actually is named maserati i believe that it's the titular maserati as well but i pretty sure uh, he was a bit a bit hokey you know a bit um uh cartoony i guess you could say um i also i was curious how accurate it is like watching like ferrari and maserati before the race is about to begin like giving like specific instructions to all their drivers as they're about to begin and it's like don't you have a pre-race meeting like the day before to go over all this strategy it's all good it's movie making it, it, they were effective moments uh for sure um silver fox patrick dempsey as kind of the wily veteran on the ferrari racing team i enjoyed that performance and presence even if it's a quite small role um, just kind of an Easter egg for racing fans. Like one of the Maserati drivers is Sterling Moss, one of the greatest F1 drivers of all time. Thought that was pretty cool. Noticed that right away. I really like Penelope Cruz's scenes with the banker at the bank where she's just, you could tell like the banker is just afraid of her, afraid of her, uh, passion and her resolve. And you can tell, uh, how nervous he gets when she starts asking questions, getting closer to Enzo's secrets. Thought that was done well. But yeah, I think like the movie just has like a lot of great tension and build-up with how the progression of the Ferrari business and the racing progress goes. And also, it just really, I think, develops and hones in on the, the triangle of the Ferraris and, uh, and uh, Lardy. And the Will Enzo Acknowledge His Illegitimate Son Question really coming into focus at the end and like you're really invested in that decision And this like really innocent young boy who just wants to spend more time with his dad and doesn't really even know anything is really off i don't want to say we're at like a golden era of racing movies not like we're getting a ton of them but it's been a good run you know ford versus ferrari four years ago from james mangold uh, obviously exhilarating film this movie ferrari michael mann a movie that by the way he had been developing since the 90s um, the The screenwriter of Michael Mann's Ferrari, Troy Kennedy Martin, died in 2009. This movie's been in development a long time. Pretty awesome. But between Ford vs. Ferrari, Michael Mann's Ferrari, and the next year from Apple and Joseph Kaczynski, we have the Brad Pitt F1 movie still untitled. Pretty, pretty, pretty great time if you're a fan. And I think this is both a great example of how to do an inspired biopic, but also it's a great racing movie in its own right. So I think it really has kind of something for anyone. So yeah, Ferrari coming out on Christmas. Let me know when you've seen it, what you think about it. Make sure you come back for my best movies of 2023. And for more movie reviews, subscribe, and I'll see you next time. All right, that's going to do it for the pod this week. Next week, again, make sure you come back for my best music of the year best tv and best movies coming soon as well and then also next week going to be talking the iron claw wonka poor things the boys in the boat from george clooney and a murder at the end of the world miniseries wrapping up so more movies more tv and of course the best of stuff to come make sure you subscribe youtube.com slash nostalgia pod linktree.com slash nostalgia pod leave a comment let me know what's good and i'll see you next week